Good morning and welcome to the Reliably Well podcast, a podcast for medical professionals looking for insight into ways to be more effective for their patients and communities by making sure they are caring for themselves first and thriving in their lives. Welcome to Reliably Well. My name is Sam Peters and I'm here with Drs. John C. Abraham and Lovely. Today, we are talking about a topic that everyone will have to face but clinicians are acquainted with it a little bit more. We're going to be, t- be talking about death and dying. Uh, to prepare for this episode, I uh, read Atul Gawande's Being Mortal, and I was surprised in the introduction that he said he, may- he learned a lot of things in med school, but he didn't learn about death and dying. Um, he writes, quote, I learned a lot in med school, but mortality wasn't one of them. And even recently, we went out to lunch, and I heard a clinician talk about the first time they had their patient die. They had, uh, I think, it pulled off shift and go to their family's house, to their parents' house, and they just needed a few days because it was very difficult. Doctor Johnson, through your education, was uh, was there a class on death and dying? Were you instructed on how to uh, think about this? No. <laughs> I, I, it is it it's alarming and disturbing the the lack of training that I received, and I remember especially early on in my career, the oncology patients that I would deal with that it was clear to everybody that that they were terminal and very close to the end of life, but yet everything including the kitchen sink was still being given to them. I do think that that has that has shifted some. I do, um, you know, we we have um, more palliative care engagement. We do have more hospice engagement. Uh, those are becoming much more commonplace um, endeavors and, and well run and very well thought out. And so, I do think that the the entire paradigm of medicine is shifted some from when I went through medical school. But the idea of even understanding how to convey that very difficult message to family members was never conveyed to the person who needed to deliver it. It was always the last person who was engaged in the case or whatever else or the low man on the totem pole who then got to deliver that very difficult information to a family who had just lost someone very important to them. And so it was always the worst job you could have. It was always the most negative portion of the care that that was doled out to the person who couldn't refuse to do it. Um, And while I, I don't relish the opportunity I do understand it for what it is. It is the beginning of uh, a process for the other side of the equation of care that we have a responsibility for, the family, to help them process this in in, in as positive a way or in as declarative a way as they can so that they can begin to heal themselves. And again, unfortunately, it's something that I learned on the job as opposed to having someone who knew how to guide me through the way to do that in the right way. 
Dr. Lovely, um, was this part of your education? So the state of education whenever I was in medical school was that we got some education on this, but it was focused around, and it was usually uh, like actors or uh, other med students, and you would do groups where they would focus on, you need to use the word death or dead to make sure they understood what happened. Um, that was kind of it. It was just making sure, because I think a lot of doctors would dance around it because they wouldn't want to. I mean, if you think about it, you go from a third-year med student where you're scared to knock on a patient's door, right, to you're out of medical school and you got to go in a room with 14 people and tell them that their nephew just died and their son just died. And that's a very intimidating room to walk into for the first time. And for the most part, you're going into it pretty well untrained. You're kind of thrown out there. You may, my ICU rotation, we did a little bit of talking about um, end-of-life care, but not uh, not in a very hands-on or guided way by anybody that was an expert in the area. Dr. Abraham. It was, uh, I'm not going to be so cynical to say that it was neglected, um, but it's, but it is, no, it was not part of my formal medical school education. Um, and it, uh, I did my training at the University of Virginia and their palliative care program is robust and it would be, everything would be deferred to palliative care. And that's what you're starting to see now as a trend. While it may seem that it's more visible with the palliative care stuff, a lot of it is just delegated to palliative care. So I don't know that it's really, um, I think it's kind of an eye of the beholder how much it's really changed. One of the main points of Atul Gawande's book is to help us see that death is not an illness or dying is not an illness. And he, he references this uh, story by Leo, Leo Tolstoy, uh, the death of Ivan Ilyich, where he, hear, he is dying and he's very frustrated that the clinicians are not recognizing it. They're trying to heal him, but he himself knows he's dying. I'm going to quote this. Uh, the deception, the lie, for which some reason they all, talking about the clinicians, accepted that he was not dying, but was simply ill. And he was only uh, in need of uh, to keep quiet and undergo a treatment. And then something very good would result. So... He himself was very frustrated that people weren't coming to terms with his own dying and death. Um, so, Dr. Lovely, if we aren't going to approach death or dying as an illness, um, what would we approach it as? Or how should a clinician approach it? Well, to quote uh, Fight Club, in the Sylvia Plath sense of the world, we're all dying. Right. Um, I think his frustration was is the like we talked about uh, in previous episodes, the lack of honesty, that lack of intellectual honesty of factually. Yes. And I don't know when you're going to die, but you have a very short period of time. And I know I don't like having that conversation. I don't like when I see on a CT scan what's almost definitely a cancer. But I'm going to tell them, hey, this is a spot I saw on the, on the thing because I don't have a tissue diagnosis yet. So let's delay that for somebody else to do. Um, but I think it's a symptom of that intellectual dishonesty. You gotta, you have to bear yourself and be honest with them. And it's a hard thing to do. Dr. Abraham. Um, there's a big difference between not lying and telling the truth. Um, and I think that in medical school, you're taught not to lie, which is good, right? We should, you should never lie to a patient and their family. I completely agree with that, but you're not taught how to tell the truth. 
And I think that it is very difficult to have that conversation of, you know, there's a difference in, hey, there's a mass in your liver and there's also one in your lung. Mm -hmm. There's one where I know this is metastatic cancer and I don't want to say it. And there's one where it's like, this is probably nothing. I'm very good with the probably nothing. It's the other one where I'm going to keep you in the hospital for it because I know something's there, yeah. but I don't want to tell you. Right. And so I've become really, um, this bugged me so much. Uh, I became friends with a buddy who did his religious studies PhD underneath Jim Childress. Jim Childress was the co-author of the bioethics textbook. He was kind of world-renowned for coming up with the principles of bioethics or this idea of principalism, patient autonomy, uh, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. So those four principles guiding everything. So Travis and I started teaching a class, and I actually teach a class at Ole Miss, and the title of the class is On Death and Dying. It's for pre-med students who is doing exactly what Glande said, <laughs> and that is, hey, they're not, I start every class the same way. The very first class, syllabus day, I say, hey, you're, you're here because you're not going to learn this in med school. <laughs> and we spend the whole semester talking about it. And it's amazing how even at that stage, when a lot of these students are about to matriculate that summer to medical school, that I mean, they're floored that you wouldn't be taught this. Um, and what I try to convince them is, is that you've got to understand what it's like to tell. It takes a lot of courage to tell the truth. It's really easy. You're, you, you are taught in a masterful way not to lie. Mm-hmm. I can use a lot of big words. Yeah, I you can, can say use, a lot yeah, of stuff right. without saying anything. Right. Um, and I think th- really kind of appreciating the difference between that, I think, is very pertinent to this idea of a dying patient. And I, and I think when we take away, when, when we tell a dying patient that they are ill, or we treat a dying patient as if they are ill, then what we do is we take away that opportunity for them to live the last of their life. Um, and that's so awful. Mm-hmm. to do that to an individual when time is so precious. Mm-hmm. You get into here in, in your outline to to refer back to a book that um, just struck me between the eyes so profoundly by Paul uh, Kalanithi, uh, When Breath Becomes Air, because of that aspect of it, because of that idea that when we have only a small time left, what is important to us to do with that precious, those precious moments that we have. And that's what we, that that's, that's what we do so wrong uh, to patients. Um, and again, we may not know when the end of their life is coming, but we do too often know that it is within a cer- certain parameter. And we don't always, when we know that, let the patient know that. In a concrete way. And here are the things that can prolong. Here's the harms that it'll cause. Here's the pain pain management options. And often I know the choices I would make for myself or for my mom is much different than what is standard in United States practice. And you talked a lot about how expensive end-of-life care is to help a lot of people suffer for a long time as opposed to uh, really talk about veterinary medicine and how uh, it's much more humane the way I treat my dogs and the way my you know mother-in-law was treated. 
And it's and and you're and you're taught in school and in training and in practice to do stuff. Oh yeah, that's all we know. Right. Yeah. There's no there's no other option. And then we failed. And like that is pressing the easy button. So mm-hmm. when somebody comes in, I was uh, caring for a patient the other day. He's 91. 91 year old guy presents the emergency department with abdominal pain. You pegged him up and just. Well, <laughs> we didn't do that. <laughs> CT scan, his liver is just exploding with metastatic disease of some kind. So the easy thing to do and what you're taught to do is admission, IR for a biopsy, scan his chest, oncology consult. That's my job. Right. <laughs> but it's a but the right thing to do, one could argue, is to walk into the patient's room and say, Sir, you're 91 years old. Why don't you tell me about your life? That's really our job. And then you realize that this 91-year-old guy winters down in Mississippi. And he's actually from upstate New York, and he built this log cabin. He hammered every nail into this log cabin 50 years ago, and he's really just can't wait to get back to his cabin because the pandemic's kept him down here for too long. And then all of a sudden, your, your treatment paradigm changes. You're right. Who, like, who knows how long he has, right? And, and that's that's what Guande really, I thought, brought out so eloquently with all of the examples because they are varied and different. What your what life living life means to you may be totally different than what living life means to me. And the only way to figure that out is to know who you are or exactly. who I am. Yeah, I had this great um, anecdote. Um, one of the uh, my mentors in training, we were talking. We had, he asked this great philosophical question, like, "What is death?" And you know, the eager third-year medical students that are just on the wards, it's like, you know, they go through all like, brain death, yeah, yeah, death. yeah. It's like all the different cranial nerve reflexes to declare brain death. That I don't even remember all of them. Um, and he said, "Well, I'm going to be honest with you. Death for me is not being able to enjoy a Red Sox baseball game." Mm-hmm. And like, that's really fascinating, right? So then you kind of get into this idea of like a good death versus dying well. And is that really the same thing? And what's your role as a clinician? Because, you know, it's one thing if you're dealing with a trauma and you need to do everything that you possibly can to save this person. And I mean, that's a totally different conversation than that. And and I think that we can all appreciate that. And I think the listeners will appreciate that, too, that we're not saying to abandon emergency medicine, (laughs) you know, Um, but we're saying that that that. That, that there is a point in time where we do have some intellectual capital that we can actually cash in and put on the table and say, hey, like, for this patient, like, you need, you need to go home. Like, let's actually talk about, like, going home. And, and I think even beyond us as clinicians, I think that, that in what, what Gwande made me do was have some of those conversations with the people that I care about or try to help them to have those conversations to get to that. What, what is your log cabin? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think that's the only way we can honor somebody in their most frail, precious period of their life that is left to live it the right way. And, and that's what I, I think in our, um, as we were talking before the show, you know, I think the U.S. is different than the rest of the world in the way we handle end of life. I think the South is different than the rest of the U.S. in the way we handle end of life. And I'm pretty sure 
this part of the country that I've lived most of my life in is different than the rest of the South, even in, in how we approach it. And we are so kind and we are so uh, proper that we're not going to have the conversation. My grandmother, whenever she would have a conversation about something that was a little bit off color, she would whisper it real softly. I don't know if everybody else's grandmothers would do that, but mine always, it didn't matter what, you know, if you say it softly like that, it's okay. And so something about dying would certainly be something that is carried in those very hushed and soft tones because that's not something we want to think about. It's a societal taboo. Like if I bring up a dead relative, the room gets silent because nobody knows how no we don't talk about it with each other it's just a societal taboo but we spend all of this all of these resources and all of this time and all of this money honoring and respecting and remembering the person Mm -hmm. when they no longer care about it Mm -hmm. as opposed to spending that time and money and effort in the last precious days of their life and we got to we we got we got to help carry that script on in our own lives and to our friends and the people we influence and say let's live life when life is here to be lived and let's honor people when they're here to understand how much we respect and honor them as opposed to trying to pay some homage after they're gone when it does nothing for them and it maybe soothes our injured conscience just a little bit. Right. And to and to kind of go back to your point about the United States being a little bit different, there's a great article published in the Journal of, Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA, back in 2017 um, about looked at 1.3 million Medicare beneficiaries over a 10-year period. Okay. Big, big data sets. 10% of those people were exposed to a hospital within the last three days of their life. And 25% of those people spent time in ICU, spent the night in ICU in the last 30 days of their life. And that is staggering. Now, some of those are probably legitimate, you know, I think that ICU serve definitely a role and hospitals serve a role, but those numbers are way too high. And who would choose it if you had 30 days left Right. Who wants to spend any of them in the ICU right. where most of the time you don't have anyone around you that loves you? Right. Yeah. So, but I have a few questions about how we can do it better. I have one specific to the emergency room because our biggest exposure to it is me not dealing with the dying patient, but dealing with the family members of the patient that's already dead hmm. and having that conversation. And I think there's a lot of things we could do better. Right now, there's a lot of barriers between the family and that patient. And we're moving toward things like bringing the family in during the code and letting them see the whole, exactly what's actually going on. Um, and I think including them in the process and being more open with them is better. Whereas right now it's like, no, you can't see them. We have to clean them up. You have to wait in this room, sterilely separated from your person. Like that's your, that, that's my mom or my dad or my brother. Like I'm going in the room. Right. Certainly as a physician, I'm going in the room uh, and I'm making this family wait out here while we clean up because they don't understand about tubes and stuff. So I think there's certainly, I think there's stuff to be done in the ER for what we're doing, what we focus, what we do day to day. Certainly, obviously, I, I, think, I think there's that, but I also think that we don't do a good enough job, and sometimes we can't, but I don't think we do a good enough job of ourselves of, of, of acknowledging what has transpired so that we realize the precious thing that we have. Um, I, I know that there's been more of a move to 
to decompress, to 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 have a a warm debrief after codes and things like that. And I think that we need to engage in that as well. That is the only way we make this, I think, more of a of a as positive of an interaction as it can be with a family is if we don't look at it as being, oh, it's over with. I'm done. Uh, take my gloves off and leave the room as fast as I possibly can sort of thing. Um, because I, I think that permeates everybody. We, we, can't, leave the, we can't be sterile. We have to take some of this with us. We, we have to. We have to acknowledge this was Bob Smith who passed away. And I don't know a lot about Bob Smith, but I know there's a room full of people who care a whole lot about Bob Smith. And let's acknowledge a life has ended here today. I think that's one of the things that we directly in our day-to-day interaction can do to start making death, again, be be part of what we do as a job as opposed to, well, that's the failure. Lean into it. There's an aversion to it. And the truth is you're paying, you're going to pay for that, that emotional wear. If you block it out, you're going to pay for it by eating at home, uh, not working out, something. Somewhere in your that's going to wear on you. Whereas if you lean into it and be there and do that kind of thing and debrief with the family and let yourself be emotionally there. And I think even certainly for me as family members have died throughout my life, leaning into that grief in a way that you actually honor them and what, how would they want me to proceed from here and actually including them in your thought process when you make decisions day to day. That's the best way I've found to honor family members is how would my brother want me to react in this situation? And then leaning into that, that grief is a, a good thing in that it diminishes the ego somewhat and lets you see a bigger picture um, that it breaks you out of that daily routine when you experience it yourself. And we have the opportunity to experience on a frequent basis if we allow ourselves to. Yeah. And there's almost kind of three different conversations going on here. Yeah. How, how do we as clinicians deal with the death of our patients we're caring for? That's really interesting and tough. Um, and, and how are you taught to do that? And how, why, how might we, when we're uh, kind of establishing a culture of practice, work to help with that? There's also how do I care for the family mm-hmm. who has just lost someone, albeit tragically, or you know maybe they've had ca- cancer for six or seven years. But then also how do we deal with the patient that we have a lot of agency and how he or she's last, you know, kind of their evening of life goes, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I think that one of the things that's interesting to Sam's first original question is where you taught about it. No, but it's also to Dr. Johnson's point, you're not even like, that is like you lose, you lose the game if the patient mm-hmm. dies as opposed to the patient, it, that patient will die at 100% of the time. And even on a societal level, you don't right. get to learn about it. We don't talk about it on a societal level. And I wonder if back when infinite mortality rates were much higher, my grandmother's generation, they all had siblings and people that had died. I wonder if we're more disconnected from death now than they were then, because now it's unusual for a kid. If you're if you're the kid in school whose dad died or brother died, you kind of get marked with that as a you're treated a little different because people don't know how to interact with death. And it's like you know to to the to the kid is normal. It's like I don't know my dad died, my mom died. I don't it's my life. It's normal, but to everybody else, they're like, hey, it's an awkward thing. That's very interesting. Yeah, no, we don't live on a farm where we see animals die or we see loved ones die. We they don't die at home anymore. What is it? Less than five percent of deaths occur at home uh, anymore. 
I mean, it, it, it the hospital is where that that happens, and 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 that's not and natural. You're not telling the kids about it, yeah. Like even like my, my we put my dog down recently, and my mom was like, "Are you going to tell the tell my five year old?" Like, of course. Like the dog is not going to be here anymore. Somebody's got to explain it to him. It's not a big deal to him. But like he doesn't. We're not. There's no connotations on death that he has preconceived. We can help him build his idea of what this means and what this process is. If we don't talk about it, then certainly it's going to seem scary. If you're, there's no conversation about this thing, then that's something that you want to block out too as a five-year-old. Like, that seems scary. I'm not talking about that. Yeah. Um, Jeffrey Gore has this very famous piece about this very idea that we used to, like, carry our dead parents to the grave. Like, throw the dead body over your shoulder and carry them to the grave and you bury them. Like that was like less than 100 years ago mm-hmm. that that happened. It was a much more intimate. And so now with kind of modern technology and machines and ICUs and ventilators and really great novel things that we should all appreciate, he describes it as the pornography of death. And that's the title of this work. And at the very end, he says this, if we dislike the modern pornography of death, then we must give back to death its parade and publicity, readmit all of our collective grief and mourning, if we make death unmentionable in our polite society, not before the children, I'm doing air quotes for the listeners, we <laughs> must also ensure the continuation of this horror comic. No censorship has ever been really effective. That's beautiful. I mean, and, and, and like that's like really this idea of how are we censoring ourselves? How are we censoring the family? How are we censoring the patient from this inevitable reality um, that is... Anyway, gores. Because it's a hard thing, but all hard things aren't bad. And if you block out all hard things, you can't get anywhere. Right. So that's what we're trying to do is sterilize it and block it out from everybody. And that's just not the right way. Right. So we're supposed to be able to talk about it, talk straight about this topic. It's going to be a theme that we go on to just talk about. (laughs) Secondly, is don't assume the patient's goal is longevity or safety. It may be going to the, was it Red Sox game? Or yeah. The, uh, the, so the last thing I want us to talk about, but go ahead. I just think, too, that to address in that point that you're bringing up about longevity, that, that Gwande points out in his, in his book is that me, most of the patients, uh, and I forgot what the statistic was he quoted in there, but the patients who went on hospice had a longer lifespan not necessarily a quality lifespan, but a longer numerical lifespan than the people who had everything tried for them. So sometimes we think of it as an equation of do you want to be comfortable or do you want to live a long time? And what he pointed out in there is sometimes living quality life is the longest uh, amount of time that you may have as well. And I, I think that we we really discount, again, the dying process the 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 living while we are inevitably dying uh, with this avoidance idea, we wind up hastening the outcome that we don't want to have happen prematurely anyway. And I think that that's important for us again to to engage people as early as we can when we know something that is a still a negative outcome that 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 we see, albeit inevitable. Early on in that process with, again, how, how, how are you going to live your life now that this has, has occurred with you? 
Um, and, and there are a lot of choices. And again, the only way we can start that is uh, start people making decisions that are their decisions is to have the conversation to begin with. And so, again, I just wanted to point that out to people who may not have read uh, Being Mortal. Again, I think both When Breath Becomes Air and Being Mortal should be prerequisites to getting your uh, license in a state or your medical degree or something else, uh, because I think they are such powerful uh, text on this portion of what living is and both for us as the as the knowledgeable healer clinician that we are, but also as human beings, they are texts that are important for us to read and understand about the fragility and preciousness of the life that we have. It's an interesting statistic that they live longer on palliative care, and I wonder how much of that is our own. If you're mentally miserable, your mind, your mental impact on killing yourself sooner as opposed to if you are comfortable and that that mental part that we don't understand and how much of it is just that uh, we don't do zero harm in the hospital. So well and compassionomics points to that idea of the positivity of the of the brain, how the the other immunological effects that 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 has positively on the body. There's so, some concreteness there that we're seeing in the data that seems I don't know how to Hocus pocusy, but it's certainly we're seeing some concrete evidence of that in a lot of the data, and th- that was a data point that also seems to me to point to that same idea. I yeah. do have one question. Uh, do you have something else? Well, no, no, no. Yeah. Just the the, the uh, I think it has to do with isolating patients from their story. Like, yes, we need to inquire about who all of our patients are, but we also need to allow them to live into the story where they are, as opposed to if I put them in the hospital, they can't they can't do the stuff they want to do there. And COVID, their family can't even come visit them. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're not going to live longer. I mean, no matter <laughs> if they get the best chemotherapy that they're. I mean, uh, um, uh, and and that's good. This is for another podcast, another time. But it's also an indictment on the pharmaceutical industry a little bit too, right? You <laughs> yeah, know, that, for sure. that we that we do all this stuff to people that may not actually yeah. do anything. Oh, we, I mean, them. all through COVID, we did. It. I mean, we're still yeah. giving them disappear and all this stuff that yeah. you know, costs a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like it might do something. The question I have for Joe, and I always like hearing from ER doctors, um, how do you tell a family? What's your process when you go in a room? What would you tell a medical student or resident when you're explaining to them, here's how I go tell a family? Well, I I try to get some of the story as opposed to the first thing that comes out of my my mouth is your loved one is dead. I do try and get some of that story so they are heard and I do understand who I'm dealing with. There, I, I ask how they are connected with Mr. Smith, you know, so I can identify wife or children, that sort of thing, and address uh, who I can. So I, I want to give a little bit of breathing space to understanding who is there and what they understood occurred before we get into the point of, of what transpired. I try to give them a little summary of what I understood when they presented and what we tried to do for them before I do give them the heavy information that their loved one has now died. And I do try to use those that terminology of, of death having occurred. And then I give them a lot of space to process that. Um, I, I set, I, I have to have some sort of a compassionate interaction with them. I try to sit by the primary 
loved one in the room and I try to put my arm around them or in some way console them physically, um, uh, non-verbally uh, at that point in time. Um, I let them know as, as, a, as a person of faith that I am praying for them. I ask them if they have questions for me uh, at this point in time. I engage them with whoever else is going to help them through seeing their loved one uh, and making sure whatever arrangements need to happen. And I let them know that I'm here and that I will come back to the room, to this room, to the bedside, wherever they need me uh, to to not hesitate on re-engaging me. And that's kind of the, 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 the general approach that I have. I think that's perfect. I think it's perfect as far as evidence-based, the best we know. And actually, my dad was the one who taught me how to do it. He was an ER doctor for many years. And I'd ask him, actually, before I was even in medical school, how he did that. And I think the approach is best practice. When you come in, you don't know these people at all. Find out who everybody is. And then who was there? What, where was the narrative at right now in this room? And then take that narrative and bridge it to the next part. Get find the the main whoever the main, the mother the main person, get lower than them, make good eye contact and give them time and just be honest. Yeah, and it's and and it's and it's having the strength to hold the emotion in that moment. You know, like I think when the when you first start to do this, the temptation is to is to talk through it, mm-hmm. as opposed to you tell them something that's terrible, and there is inevitably lots of very appropriate raw emotion and to let it kind of run its course. Um, which is, yeah. Um, and they're usually thankful for that. Mm-hmm. No, they're not mad. They, I've not had anger directed at me ever. I've seen lots of anger and lots of all kinds of reactions that you never expect, but it's always, if you're just there for them and open with the questions, like you said, listening questions at the end or anything else I can do for you guys. Um, I think that's the one thing on shift throughout my career. And I think most ER doctors have learned throughout their career. That's the one time where I really slow down and everything else goes away. And it makes our, going back to compassionomics, that's a valuable thing that needs to happen more frequently on shift. Not that I want to tell more people, but those connections where you actually take the time to connect. And that's one time that reverence forces me to do that. And uh, it doesn't always have to be a reverent situation to stop and connect with somebody. Absolutely. Uh, in Fyodor, Dosta- Fyodor Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers Karamazov, there's a character named uh, Father Zosima, and there's a little widow that comes up. She had four children. Her last child just died, and she's crying, and she feels like she's lacking faith. And Father Zosima just looks at her and says, weep, weep, and do not be consoled. But every time you weep, know that uh, your child is looking down at you, um, but it's this idea that I think generally showing your emotions is not okay. And it's not okay to, I guess, embrace your humanity. I think we talked about that last podcast. Um, it's okay to weep, especially when it comes down to dying. And giving them space for that seems fitting. Um, thank you guys for this discussion. This has been very helpful. Um, for those that are listening, thank you for listening. And again, we want to ask you to give us a five-star review so that we can be ranked higher when uh, people search for a podcast on medicine. And if you have any other idea, please email me or call me um, and I'd love to hear it so that we can have a episode on things that our, our, uh, our clinicians are asking because we want to be helpful. Uh, 
Until next time, be well.